This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Remember when Joe Biden launched that crazy attack on an American worker who told him you're actively trying to end our Second Amendment right and take our guns? The former vice president cussed at this worker. He waved a finger in his face, denied that he was going to take the guns away. And then he told him that he was going to, quote, take your AR-14s away, whatever those are. That was a few months ago. Now look at where we are. As leftists are engaging in violent civil unrest in our streets, gun shops are now having to ration sales of guns and ammunition, which have been flying off the shelves, causing a national shortage. Yet incredibly, at a time when President Trump is talking about sending federal officers into to more of these violent blue cities. The mayors of Chicago and Seattle are arguing that Trump should tackle gun control. No shock there. Why? Because the left has targeted the Second Amendment and they have been heavily aided in this agenda by the media, which is only too happy to put forth mountains of propaganda and lies about guns and the statistics on guns to help make it happen. Thankfully, though, we have Dr. John Lott to tell us the truth about the actual data on gun laws, mass public shootings and the gun control agenda. Dr. Lott is president President of the Crime Prevention Research Center, and we will be talking to him today about his new book called Gun Control Myths, How Politicians, the Media, and Botched Studies Have Twisted the Facts on Gun Control. Dr. Lott, so great to have you back on the show. How are you today? Doing great. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, glad you're here. What do you make of these mayors saying that we really need gun control to quell the violence in Chicago and Seattle? It's kind of a rather ironic statement at a time like this, isn't it? Well, a little absurd. Look, I mean, I think it's pretty clear what's happening. If you go and you order the police to stand down, or you go and close down police divisions, or you go and cut their budgets, or you go and take away the ability for police to use non-lethal means to go and try to control uh, riots, uh, you know, or you just demoralize the police, or you do all of those. Uh, it's not too surprising that you're not going to have as many arrests, and uh, it's not going to be that risky for criminals to go out and commit crimes. And when it's not risky for criminals to go and commit crimes, you see more crime. Right. So I don't think it's I don't think it's a particularly difficult thing to figure out. In Chicago, for years, Chicago has made it so that it's hard for the police to go and arrest people. Uh, in 2018. Uh, the arrest rate for murders in Chicago was 13%. So that means out of every 100 murders that occurred in Chicago, only 13 resulted in an arrest. And the conviction rate was less than uh, 10 per 100. So, uh, you know, and there are all sorts of things that Chicago, for example, has done in order to make the job of police extremely difficult. Uh, So, for example... Every time a police officer talks to a civilian, they have to fill out two legal-sized pages of forms to go and talk about who they talked to, what they talked about, what were the circumstances. 
that they talk about things. It's really a detailed form that takes any place from about 45 minutes to an hour or more to fill out. And so if you're a police officer and you talk to four civilians in the morning, the rest of your afternoon is filled up with paperwork. Wow. And that's not paperwork from arrest. But it's just paperwork from talking to people. And so what do you think that does to officers' willingness or interest in talking to people? to find out what's going on in their part of the city. Uh, I mean, I could go on. That's just one example of, uh, of how police have been hamstrung already in, in many of these places. Yes. Uh, wow. So it's not too surprising. And, they, and the bizarre thing is, before gun control advocates would go and say, well, if you have a problem, go and call the police. But what if the police aren't available? I mean, anybody who's read my academic research knows that I think police are extremely important in stopping crime. I think they're probably the single most important factor in stopping crime. But the police themselves understand that even under normal conditions, they virtually always arrive on a crime scene after the crimes occur. And now, you know, we've been dealing with the last four or five months where you have police departments or Jails around the country have been releasing up to 50% of the inmates that they had. Uh, You've had police uh, not responding to many different types of calls. Uh, What are people supposed to do? And that's the gun sales that you you referred to. People realize that now, maybe more than usual, they're not able to depend upon the police to, to come and rescue them. Right, right. Well, it's it's really jarring when you're watching this violence on the streets and you're also hearing about defunding police or getting rid of the police. People can put two and two together. And it's just amazing to me, though, because Mayor Lori right. Lightfoot, yeah, I was going to say Mayor, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago is accusing Republicans of refusing to even have a conversation about things like universal background checks and closing the gun show loophole. These are some of the myths that persist. Can you speak to that a little bit, the facts on those two things? Sure. Well, I mean, they're both related. Um, You know, everybody wants to try to stop uh, dangerous people from getting guns. The problem is, is that the current background check system is a complete mess, and it doesn't, it's not stopping criminals from getting guns. You know, you'll frequently hear that there are 2.5 million dangerous prohibited people that have been stopped from obtaining guns because of background checks. That's simply false. Hmm. What they should say is that there have been 2.5 million initial denials, and that virtually all of those are mistakes. Something over 99% of those are mistakes. It's one thing to stop a felon from buying a gun. It's another thing to stop somebody simply because they have a name similar to a felon from buying a gun. So when you go and you buy a gun, you fill out the 4473 form, you put down your name, your social security number, your address, your birthday, uh, your race, your eye color. You think they're using all that information. What they use is roughly phonetically similar names, excluding the middle name, and uh, similar birthdays. (laughs) And, you know, that creates a lot of mistakes. Uh, And the problem is it's primarily minorities who are harmed from those mistakes. (laughs) People tend to have names similar to others in their racial groups. Hispanics have names similar to other Hispanics. Blacks have names similar to other Blacks. Uh, 33% of Black males in the United States are legally prohibited from owning a gun because of past felony records. 
whose names are their names most likely to be confused with? Other law-abiding, good black males who want to protect themselves and their families. Right. Now, there's no reason why those mistakes should be occurring. I mean, if you were to go to a, a private employer who does background checks on employees and, and tell him that he should just use roughly phonetically similar names, he will look at you like you're from Mars, <laughs> uh, you know, because he would know that there'd be tons of mistakes there. But the question is, why can't the federal government meet the same requirements for doing background checks for purchasing guns that private employers have to meet in order to go back, do background checks on employees? Yeah, but if you bring that up to Democrats, they will go and cry poison pill. Oh boy. And they will fight you tooth and nail against making having the federal government have to meet the same standards for background checks that the federal government requires that employers have to make. That's only part of the problem. The other part is just the cost. When you go and buy a gun in most states, you don't see the cost of the background check because it's part of the price of the gun. It's not like a sales tax. It gets added on top of the, the price of the gun. You see it in those states that already have these universal background checks where if I want to go and transfer a gun to you, we have to go to a, a licensed dealer, and the transfer will occur through the licensed dealer, and we have to pay them a fee for doing that. And if you look across states, you'll see in a place from Oregon, it may be about $55 on average to you know, Washington, D.C. It's $125. To New York City, it's like $200 to go and do it. You know, $100 may not stop you or I from being able to go and get a gun, but the people that my research shows who benefit by far the most from having guns, poor blacks who live in high-crime urban areas, the very people who are most likely victims of violent crime. Yeah, get affected by it. Yeah, Dr. John Lott, we'll run to a break. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Since Roe v. Wade, more than 60 million babies' lives have been taken through abortion, and there are millions of additional preborn babies whose lives are still at risk. But the Ministry of Preborn stands in the gap with young moms in crisis, helping them to choose life. When I saw my baby for the first time on an ultrasound, I just felt so shocked and so surprised. I was just so scared. After learning all my options, I chose life. It was important for me to make the right choice. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. They're the direct competition to Planned Parenthood, helping moms to make the choice of life. And you can help. One ultrasound is just $28. Would you join with Preborn in the cause for life? To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at Janet Meffer. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. 
Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Well, the name of the book is Gun Control Myths, How Politicians, the Media, and Botched Studies Have Twisted the Facts on Gun Control. Dr. John Lott, the author and also president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, we're talking about some of these myths that are out there that uh, push forward this agenda to enact gun control. And you're breaking, you know, debunking these myths as you do so well, Dr. Lott. And we were talking about, you know, universal background checks. You get into a lot of different myths in this book, and people really need to read them in detail for yourself themselves and get the end notes and everything to find all of these references to where you're getting all these things. Vox is one of these media resources you've mentioned that's published a piece on America's unique gun violence problem, I guess as they call it. What of some of the myths that Vox put out, things like America has six times as many firearm homicides as Canada, 16 times as many as Germany, you know, America has 4.4% of the population, but we've got, you know, half the civilian-owned guns around the world. They try to really scare people a lot with this, but what would you say to some of these myths that are being put out there that are really not accurate? Right. Well, you know, I guess the general claim is that the United States has a high homicide rate relative to other countries, and that's simply not true. I mean, if you look across all the countries in the world, we're well below the average, we're well below the median, so 50 more, many more than 50% of the countries are above us in terms of homicide rates. But one of the problems that you have in looking at homicides is people don't realize that there's a difference between homicides and murders. Homicides are murders plus justifiable homicides. Very few countries in the world report murder rate data. That's really what you want. I'm not really, it's never really been obvious to me why you want to lump together murders with justifiable homicides. I mean, it seems to me there's a big difference between a woman shooting somebody, who, a rapist who breaks into her house at 2 a.m. in the morning. Uh, versus, let's say, a robber who murders somebody in the course of committing his robbery. Those seem like very different types of cases, and I wouldn't lump them together. Yeah, that's weird. That's what happens with the homicide data. In the United States, we probably, by far, have the highest justifiable homicides by both police and civilians. Over 20% of the homicides that we have are justifiable homicides. And so... You know, you have to adjust for that, and none of the numbers that you're just talking about even try to adjust for that or adjust for population and what have you. Um, you know, uh, you know. anyway, there's, even if you compare us to uh, developed countries only, in I, there are multiple developed countries that have much higher homicide rates than what we have here in the United States. And many of them have very low gun ownership hmm. rates. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's um, you know, 
even countries, if you look across the world, the countries that tend to have the fewest guns per capita tend to have the highest homicide rates. I mean, you look at a country like Brazil, only about two-tenths of 1% of the adult population legally has a license to own a gun. And yet Brazil has a murder rate that's six times higher than what we have in the United States. Mexico has less than 1% of the adult population owning a gun. They've only had one gun store in the country since 1972. Uh, The most powerful gun that you can legally buy in Mexico is a 22 rifle. Uh, And yet Mexico also has a murder rate that's about six times higher than what we have here in the United States. That is significant. That's important for people to know that because you wouldn't get that impression when you're just reading the average USA Today story or what have you, New York Times, whatever it is. You know, in another area that I know people are very fascinated with and have looked a lot to you for the research on this is all of this data on mass public shootings. We get a lot of propaganda about the mass public shootings. You point out in your book, for example, we got all of this uh, news coverage of Parkland, Florida, not so much about that Texas shooting. You know, they, they, they really skew things. And I I was really blown away. I didn't realize the numbers were what they actually were until I was looking at your book. 89% of mass public shootings between 1998 and June 2019 were conducted in gun-free zones. I mean, that's basically almost all of them were in gun-free zones. Why are we not responding to this intelligently and saying gun-free zones are a really bad idea, especially after what happened in Florida? Right. Well, I'm in Florida. Look, The thing is, the media refuses to report that fact about these attacks. Um, You know, it's you will search in vain to find the media stories after these attacks mention that uh, you've had yet another attack occurring in a place where civilians were banned from having guns. These attackers may be crazy in some sense, but they're not stupid. They know if they go to a place where... um, where victims can't defend themselves, it's going to be relatively easier for them to go and kill people. Their goal is to try to kill as many people as possible. And if people can't defend themselves, no more people. You know, you can have one police officer, let's say, in a place. But if you have somebody in uniform and he's identified as the only person that has a gun, who do you think the first person is who's going to be killed if there's going to be an attack? Those police officers have an incredibly difficult job in stopping these attacks. The benefit of having concealed carry is that you take away the strategic advantages that these killers have. They don't know who it is then that they have to go and take out first. And even if you're going to have an officer there, it makes the job safer for the officer because these killers then have to worry that if they go and attack the officer and they reveal their position, they have to worry that somebody behind them or to the side might be able to stop them. One of the chapters I have in the book goes through and talks about all these attacks, what would have been mass public shootings that have been stopped by concealed carry permit holders. This is just an attack last week in Indiana. Yes. Um, in which the police chief, our police captain, said that she believed that many people would have been killed. A couple of people had already been shot. Uh, when this uh, attacker was stopped by a concealed carry permit holder. Um, I can give you dozens of cases in just the last few years where these attacks have been stopped by permit holders, and they just don't get any national news coverage. Even dramatic 
heroic cases. There's only been, in the last five years, that there's only been two of these cases that have gotten really any national news attention significantly, and, and the media has botched both of those stories. Mm. Um, one of the cases, if I have a minute, uh, occurred just a few days after the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. It was in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, an attacker went into the Kroger grocery store there, started shooting blacks. And what got the attention of the New York Times and got the attention of Meet the Press and ABC, CBS, NBC News and everybody else was the quote from the attacker where he went up to one of the customers who was white and he said, whites don't shoot whites. Mm-hmm. You know, the way it was played was that he, since he was white and the customer was white, he was just assuring the customer that he wasn't going to shoot the, the customer. The problem was they missed the first part of the quote. If they had read any of the local media, the local media had the full quote, and the full quote was, please don't shoot me. Mm. Whites don't shoot whites. So rather than the murderer trying to console the customer saying that he wasn't going to shoot the customer, the customer was a concealed carry permit holder, and it was pointing his gun at the murderer. And the murderer was begging the customer not to shoot the murderer. Wow. And um, the customer ended up shooting the murderer, wounding him severely. The guy got into the car and drove off, but because he was uh, badly wounded, he only made it about a mile down the street before he had to pull over to the side and passed out. And it was there that the police were able to, uh, 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 you know, catch him. But... Uh, you know, I just as an aside, I had been up till that point texting with Chuck Todd, um, the moderator from Meet the Press, and yeah. I said, Chuck, you know, it's on this on your on Meet Press. Uh, I, you've missed part of the quote here that really gives it a different angle than what you talked about. And I gave him the links to uh, the local news stories, which had the full quote. And say, you know, maybe next week you might want to correct this. Never corrected it, and he blocked me after that point. Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> take my text. <laughs> he doesn't want to have to be caught. That's that's insane. He blocked you for telling him what the actual story was. That's that's insane. Yeah, I don't know what the, uh, you know, it was just bizarre. Yeah. Well, it, it shows you what's going on. You even talked about some of the censorship you've gone through with Twitter. So they don't want you putting out any references. For example, what was the New Zealand mosque shooter? And you were giving some facts on that. They don't want that out there. So it, it's gone now from journalistic malpractice and not reporting the truth that they even know about. And now they're trying to suppress truth when it comes out that they don't want other people to see. And that's that's a whole nother level of incompetence. Yeah, well, it has a big impact on people's perceptions. I mean, you talk about mass public shootings. My guess is the entire debate that we have about gun control right now would be dramatically different if the media just did two things. One, once in a while, mentioned that we've had yet another mass public shooting in a place where people were banned from having guns. Mm-hmm. And uh, once in a while, giving news coverage to these cases where civilians have used guns to stop mass public shootings. I think the debate would be, you know, the other thing that would be nice is if they would go and uh, uh, at least give people more accurate impression about how the United States compares to other countries in terms of mass public shootings. You know, you mentioned the 
New Zealand case, um, few people know that within 24 hours of that, there was a big mass public shooting in Brazil at a school, or that there was a mass public shooting in the Netherlands. Hmm. We just don't hear about these mass public shootings in other countries. Yeah, exactly right. Well, people can get the facts in your book. It's Gun Control Myths. Dr. John Lott, thank you so much, Dr. Lott, for being with us, and we'll be right back. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Let's talk a little bit about what the Supreme Court just did. John Roberts, once again, siding with the liberal wing. I think it's getting to the point where we might not want to say it as he's siding with the liberal wing, because the more he does this, the more it makes me think he's actually part of the liberal wing. 5-4 decision on Friday rejecting that Nevada church's request to block the state government from enforcing a cap on attendance at religious services. Senator Ted Cruz tweeted early Saturday morning that Roberts had abandoned his oath. Isn't that interesting? Tom Cotton, who is the senator from Arkansas, said freedom of religion is our first freedom. Yet SCOTUS has ruled that casinos can host hundreds of gamblers while churches cannot welcome their full congregations. Justice Roberts once again got it wrong, shamefully closing church doors to their flocks. This strikes down a suit from Calvary Chapel, Dayton Valley, which argued that it was being treated unfairly compared with other businesses in the state. Well, they were being treated unfairly. This is a report from The Hill. So let me read a little bit of what Justice Gorsuch had to say. He said, this is a simple case under the governor's edict. A 10 screen multiplex may host 500 moviegoers at any time. A casino, too, may cater to hundreds at once with perhaps six people huddled at each craps table here and a similar number gathered gathered around every roulette wheel there. Large numbers and close quarters are fine in such places, but churches, synagogues, and mosques are banned from admitting more than 50 worshipers, no matter how large the building, how distant the individuals, how many wear face masks, no matter the precautions at all. In Nevada, it seems it is better to be in entertainment than religion. But the First Amendment prohibits such obvious discrimination against the exercise of religion. The world we inhabit today with a pandemic upon us poses unusual challenges, but there's no world in which the Constitution permits Nevada to favor Caesar's palace over Calvary Chapel. That was a really, really good dissent, and I appreciated what he had to say. It's very discouraging to see these churches lose some of these lawsuits because they're on the side of the Constitution. And the Constitution, as it states in Article 6 in the Supremacy Clause, is the supreme law of the land, not some wayward leftist tyrant who decides that he's going to exploit what is going on in a pandemic situation during a tumultuous political situation in which they want to derail Trump and crack down on churches. And I am absolutely convinced this is a political move on the part of the governor there and also all these mayors and these, you know, Governor Newsom in California, on and on and on. So I was delighted to see this 
occur over the weekend. I was really glad to see this. Grace Community Church, Dr. John MacArthur's church in California, announced that they would continue to hold in-person services despite state-mandated restrictions banning in-person worship services. And they put out this statement. It was very, very good. And it was good to see this because we have seen a number of smaller churches in the state of California take a stand, go to court, etc. And it's good that somebody of MacArthur's prominence will actually step up and say, we're with you. (laughs) You know, we're going to do this. This is from the Christian Post. Uh, MacArthur said the government is specifically tasked with the oversight and protection of civic peace and well-being within the boundaries of a nation or community. God has not granted civic rulers authority over the doctrine, practice, or polity of the church. The biblical framework limits the authority of each institution to its specific jurisdiction. The church does not have the right to meddle in the affairs of individual families and ignore parental authority. Parents do not have authority to manage civil matters while circumventing government officials. So this was a matter of jurisdiction. And they're right. I, everything in this statement, you can go online and read the whole thing. Everything that they said was really right on the money. And I loved seeing this. And they had church yesterday and, and God bless them for doing this. Now, where am I going with this? Well, you can never actually have somebody do something biblical without somebody complaining about it. And in this case, the people who were complaining about it while acknowledging that Grace Community Church certainly did have the right to feel this way was Nine Marks. Now, Nine Marks, you're familiar with this group. This is Mark Dever. He's a Gospel Coalition guy. He's with Together for the Gospel. He's all over the place with the YRR movement, the Young Wrestlers and Reform movement. Jonathan Lehman and Mark Dever are also on staff there. At Nine Marks, uh, Dever is also the senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. President of Nine Marks, Jonathan Lehman is the editorial director of Nine Marks and an elder at Cheverly Baptist Church in Maryland. They did a little podcast and Jonathan Lehman also wrote a blog post refuting some of what was in the Grace Community Church statement, which was absurd. And I'm going to comment on some of this. Lehman explained they wanted to do the show because they wanted to address the fact that if pastors read the Grace Community Church statement, they might think they're in sin if they don't do what the Bible commands. (laughs) Well, they didn't say it that way. (laughs) I mean, do not forsake the assembling together. And I know you can interpret that a little bit differently based on the restrictions that your particular state has. But then Lehman quoted from the Grace Community Church statement and questioned whether or not civil disobedience is required. Listen to cut one. Well, the statement itself says, it says, our prayer is that every faithful congregation will stand with us in obedience to our Lord. Amen. Amen. There's a caveat there. Yeah. Insofar as that's the right judgment to make, amen. Well, no, amen that we always want to be obedient to the Lord. But the question is... But in this particular action of gathering at this moment when governments are forbidding gathering. Well, okay, not all governments are forbidding. Right. So the government of California is not forbidding it. They can meet out in their parking lot. They have more freedom than we do here in the district. (laughs) In the district, we're not allowed to meet outdoors in great numbers. Now, so our congregation is going into Virginia. Our congregation is going over to Virginia where we can do it legally and freely. My concern is that in in reading this, maybe not as carefully as one should, you, you could be forgiven for feeling like obedience to God must mean disobeying any request your government is making of you not to meet for any time. Okay. First of all, when he says that California has more freedom than the District of Columbia, that's not true. I looked it up. I looked at the Washington, D.C. mayoral order that was in place, and 
they were allowed as of June 22nd to meet at 50% capacity. That's online. You can look it up. The Washington, D.C. mayor's order, 50% capacity is allowed in churches. At the time, California was allowed 25% capacity, which was less. This was as of May 25th, 25% capacity inside churches. And the latest move of Governor Newsom was to bar indoor worship. Not only that, but small groups and home Bible studies were also included in that per Liberty Council. You can look that up as well. So it's not the case that D.C., had uh, less freedom than California. That's just factually untrue. But this issue of, you know, this is so ironic. Mark Dever closed his church. He closed his church in March and he didn't open it back up until early June. He didn't even have online services for heaven's sake. He didn't have online services. He wouldn't even do that. There was a story here from Religion News Service, and somebody asked Dever on Twitter, why not live stream messages for the edification of the saints at this trying time? Dever's response was, because a video of a sermon is not a substitute for a covenanted congregation assembling together and all the various means of God's grace in that, I think it would be healthier to respect God's strange providence in a period of abstinence from meeting together. Where's that in the Bible? Not only that, but Jonathan Lehman is the guy who went out on June 7th to the Faith That Works protest, the Black Lives Matter protest in the streets of Washington, D.C., at a time that the mayor had banned these kinds of gatherings. So who's in violation of the government's order? Jonathan Lehman was, and other people like Tabidi Anyebwile and David Platt and people like that. They were all in violation of the mayoral order. But these guys are trying to say, not David Platt and Tabidi, I'm speaking of Jonathan Lehman, they're willing to get upset because people say, let's have church. This is what they're saying. Now, Dever has subsequently reopened his church, but they're meeting in Virginia and they're meeting outside. Why in the world wouldn't you meet at 50% capacity in your church in D.C. if you're allowed to do that under the D.C. guidelines? Does this make any sense to anybody? Does it make any sense to anybody that the argument that these guys are making is that, well, I don't really know if, if it's something you should be putting out there, that you'd be in sin not to defy California's tyranny. Of course, they're not in sin to violate California's tyranny. They're doing the right thing. Those are tyrants out there. There's no discussion about tyranny. I listened to the entire podcast. They didn't talk about tyranny. They didn't talk about the incredible hypocrisy, not only of the Black Lives Matter protesters not being held to the same standards, but the fact that people like Lehman participated in them and then turn around as elders in churches and say, well, maybe you shouldn't be meeting. Now, when you hear what some of his answers were on why, you're going to be amazed. We'll come back to that. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. That's the theme of our new campaign. And our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles, both to new believers and to those who've been praying many years for their own Bible in countries like China, India, and Nepal. Imagine strengthening the faith of a new believer in China like Washi, a 30-year-old wife and mother of two who overcame illiteracy two years ago and is yearning to read her very own Bible. Or Jerish, an 80-year-old 
man in India who followed Hinduism for decades, but is now a new Christian determined to follow Jesus Christ. You can join the Janet Mefford listening family in sending a Bible for only $5 or 20 for $100. Call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Thank you for caring. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I want to play some more of this podcast with Jonathan Lehman and Mark Dever from Nine Marks. They were not in agreement with the decision of Grace Community Church to put out this statement and say, we're having in-person services. This is a biblical command. We're not going to obey the California governor on this any longer. And they had some objections to this. They talked about being commanded to gather as a body. And Lehman asked the question, can the state require us to not meet and to not sing? which is what's going on in California. This is Dever's response. Cut to. From the government's perspective, I would say yes. Uh, And I would say it it would be like this. If this is not a permanent request, if this is a temporary request, Mm -hmm. if this is not a request aimed just at Christian churches, but Mm -hmm. not at Jewish synagogues and not at Muslim mosques mosques and and not at... um, secular concerts and not at, you know, if it's not aimed uh, only at us as opposed to at other like gatherings of people, and if the purpose is for the public health, our own health, the health of our neighbors, I think those are all things that we, certainly as pastors at Capitol Hill, have taken into account when we tried to think, should we abide with these requests? And because we've understood that there's not animus, but there's a desire to fulfill the public trust in what they're doing in a way that we would affirm them in doing what they're doing, trying to fulfill the public's trust for public safety, uh, then we would certainly uh, encourage uh, compliance with that request. Uh, We certainly would agree with the elder's statement from Grace Community Church that the state doesn't have the authority to instruct us that we cannot meet because we're quite willing to go to jail in order to faithfully fulfill what the Lord has commanded us to do, Mm -hmm. as many Christians are showing around the world in various places today and and have shown in the past. You think of enslaved Christians here in America. You think of Baptist ministers in Virginia who were thrown in jail. Yeah, so there's lots of ways in which, as Christians, we know that and we've we've shown that and we should continue to, to show that. 
Well, forgive me for not believing that Mark Dever would easily go to jail to fight for the church to remain open because I know what he's been doing during the pandemic. And by the way, if you're saying that the state cannot require people not to meet in the church if they don't evenly apply it, that's true, but that's not the case. Have you been paying any attention to what's going on in California? Have you seen these protests? Talk to your co-host at your podcast about the protests that are taking place while the churches are shut down. He doesn't even bring it up. Here's Lehman's response, cut three. I, I, I want to say on the one hand, there is something called sphere sovereignty, where the state has one jurisdiction, the church has another. But I also want to say those jurisdictions overlap, right? Insofar as you have people who are both citizens and church members, yeah. the state has one claim, you're our citizens, the church is another, you're our church members. And we, we see that, we see that overlap in fire codes. You know, we're, we're accustomed to, in some regard, uh, the state making restrictions on our meeting spaces, building codes, fire codes, zoning regulations. And we don't perceive that as an encroachment upon ecclesiastic, ecclesiastical order. Or it's freedom. Just, or freedom. We understand that. Well, they're doing their job. Now, yeah. can they go too far? Of well, course. yes, they can. It's just so silly. What fire codes? What? How is that analogous to telling churches they can't meet on in, an indefinite order like in California? How is that possibly analogous to to saying any building? And by the way, fire codes are evenly applied, Jonathan. You don't have exceptions for Black Lives Matter protesters. They can have a building and the fire codes don't matter. But the church, you better have fire codes. That's the analogy and that's not going on. So that's a dumb point. Here's the blackout analogy. Now, this is the dumbest one of all, if I may say so. This is cut four. So you used the example yesterday with me, Mark, about churches along the coastal lines during World War II. Explain that. Yeah, when there were there were blackouts because there was concerns of German shelling from the uh, submarines or mm-hmm. even battleships, actually, uh, in the East Coast and Japanese in the West Coast. And so there would be various times when places certainly like Manhattan or Los Angeles or San Diego would or San Francisco would be put on blackout where for the sake of public safety do not uh, let any light show that could make it easier to target us now if a church complies with that even though they were they, they were going to have be having meetings that evening and maybe even out outreach revival meetings I mean is is the state coercing them mm-hmm. well no I mean the the state is not going to do this forever. The state is not just aiming this at churches. The state is doing this for the public health, for the public good, and for the good of your neighbor. Well, and for the good of the church. Oh, my goodness. This is so dumb. First of all, if you have a blackout order like they did during World War II, that occurs at, let me see, nighttime. Asking a church, can you turn out the lights so if the Germans show up on a U-boat, they can't bomb you because they didn't have infrared technology in the military back in the 1940s. They can still have church during the day. There's a little thing called the sun and windows. How, how is this analogous? You can still have church and they didn't shut the churches down. They didn't say you can't have church services of more than 10 people because the Germans might bomb us. This isn't analogous. You know, these guys have absolutely no capacity to even make sound, rational arguments to defend themselves because at every turn they are displaying their ignorance of the Constitution, which, by the way, going back to that previous clip, when you had Dever saying the state can require you to shut down your church or not saying as long as it's for a limited period of time, not even acknowledging the fact that California has an indefinite order in place and no, the church cannot be told it can't sing 
Have you seen the First Amendment? We have freedom of religion. We have freedom of speech. You can't have a government telling any American that you can't talk or sing. It's ridiculous. As long as it's only for about, oh, I don't know, six months. You can't sing for six months. Fine with me. Give me a break. These guys have no idea what they're talking about. Final cut. Dever talking about closing his own church down. Listen to cut five. You guys didn't gather for what, two months? We did not gather starting from the middle of March through the remainder of March, through all of April, through all of May, through the first Sunday of June. We did not gather. Okay. In that window, a member says to you. Very much like this statement. statement. He just said, Hebrews 10, I, I feel I need to. I feel I'm in sin. How did you pastor that person? Well, because he said he felt like he was in sin, I phoned him. He's a, he's a good friend in the church. And I just said, well, brother, you should thank you for informing us. Um, you should resign your membership immediately and find a group of Christians that are obedient to Scripture. He said, well, I didn't I didn't mean to say that. I mean, I understand you can disagree on this. I, I understand you believe we should meet two normally and we're an exceptional time. I said, well, that's, we didn't leave room for that in your language. So you've got to... You've got to somehow leave room in your language for people to disagree with you. So you're saying you're saying to him, for the one who says it is unclean, it is unclean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you're convinced that you are in sin complying with what the government. Oh, is not, asking, no, your pastors are asking you. Your pastors are saying we're not gathering. You're saying that's unclean. You're saying you have to then go to another church. Well, if you're going to be consistent and if there are no other factors in your life. but right. So, yes, just in isolation right. for yes. conversation's sake. Yes. Yes, okay. that could be. All right. Can you believe that? So a guy comes to Mark Dever and he says, I really have a conviction that we need to go back and go to church the way the Bible commands. And Mark Dever's first response is, then you need to go to another church. How'd you like to have a pastor like that? This is why Nine Marks is so frequently criticized for its authoritarianism and its membership covenants by which they can control people. There's all kinds of stuff on that you can read online. We've talked about it on the show before. But you know what he never considers when that guy comes up to him? That the pastor could be wrong. The pastor could be wrong. Did you note that? Not only that, but they are comparing that Christian to the weaker brother of Romans 14. Do you remember what Romans 14 says? Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt. The one who does not and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? It goes on to say, uh, I am convinced, Paul says, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but if anyone regard something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. You are seriously trying to make an analogy that the Christian who says, hey, pastor, open the church back up is equivalent to the weaker brother who doesn't want to eat anything unclean or do anything unclean in the context of Romans 14. Are you kidding me? This is the this is the disdain with which these woke guys look at the average Christian and the Bible believing pastors who say enough is enough. We are being had. We are being treated unfairly. And by the way, when you look at some of the constitutional arguments, the courts have a really important strict scrutiny test talking about government action infringing on our rights. What about the compelling state interest that has to be present that's narrowly tailored through the least restrictive means to advance the compelling interest? Those are very important constitutional issues that were never once raised in this podcast between Jonathan Lehman and Mark Dever. They're dead wrong, and I'm not afraid to say so. 
And John MacArthur and the rest of those brave pastors in California are doing the right thing. God bless them. Keep up the good work and keep obeying the word of God. This hour of Janet Mefford today has been brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to needy Christians in Asia. $5 is all it costs to send one Bible. 800-YES-WORD is the number to call. 800-YES-WORD. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time.